In the warm days of late May, 1754, George Washington led a small detachment of colonial troops under the Crown's flag and a few native soldiers to a small, rocky glen in the thick forests of the Ohio Valley. There he opened fire upon a French diplomatic mission, killing nine Frenchmen, including Joseph de Coulon de Villiers. As a result, global conflict erupted, leading to 900,000 combatant casualties. This skirmish would have major global effects and would start the Seven Years' War, or the French and Indian War. It would also be George Washington's first taste of battle. He wrote to his brother in a letter, quote, The right wing where I stood was exposed to and received all the enemy's fire. I heard the bullets whistle, and, believe me, there was something charming in the sound. This is the Days of Your podcast. I'm your host, Joe, and in this episode, we'll be looking at the Battle of Jumonville Glen, George Washington's first battle. We'll see its outcomes and effects, and we'll also see the role it played on George Washington's life and later commands and duties. There was a problem for King George II in 1754 in regards to his American colonies. They hadn't revolted or anything, not yet at least, but French colonists, soldiers, and diplomats were romping about the Ohio Valley, land he believed belonged to him. Governor Robert Dinwiddie had sent the Frenchmen in the area a letter asking them to leave. A man named Le Gardoir de Saint-Pierre replied, As to the summons you send me to retire, I do not think myself obliged to obey it. He thus politely informed Washington that he was there in accordance of orders, that Washington's letter should have been addressed to his commanding officer in Canada, and that he had no intention of leaving. With this, the French began expanding the building of fortresses in the area. The Crown commissioned the governor to, quote, drive them out by force of arms if they did not leave. In an attempt to rouse patriotism among the colonists, Governor Dinwiddie attempted to form a large volunteer militia from multiple colonies. Unfortunately, this fell on mostly deaf ears, so if patriotism wouldn't work, maybe money could. The Virginia House of Burgesses gave Dinwiddie 10,000 pounds sterling to, quote, prosecute the action. Young George Washington hopped on this opportunity to play a role in the affair and received, quote, the post of lieutenant colonel. Quickly, with pay promised, enlistments came in to join the militia in droves. According to the now-in-command George Washington, the men were not up to suit. He wrote, We daily experience the great necessity for clothing the men. He continued to complain, As we find the generality of those who are to be enlisted are of those loose and idle persons that are quite destitute of house and home. With much less than 200 men who were poorly trained and even worsely equipped, on April 2nd, 1754, George Washington set out for Williamsburg towards the frontier that was the Ohio Valley. His orders read to act on the defensive and to make prisoners of or to kill and destroy his enemy. En route to his destination, Washington received news that the French, having a little over a thousand troops, took over the tiny fortress at the Forks, now known as modern-day Pittsburgh. 
The French had then begun to build their own fort on the remains of the British site they had just destroyed. The French had ejected a force of British troops under the command of Edward Ward, as well as their native ally called Half-King. Even worse, reinforcements under a man called Colonel Fry had not yet arrived at the force to support the troops there. With the loss of the fort, the British faced the frightening prospect of losing native support in the region to the French. For the time being, Washington had to make a choice and decided it best to call a war council. To reassure Half-King, Washington wrote him a letter. The young commander assured that his troops were coming up, claiming that it was only a small advance guard that was coming to, quote, clear the roads for a great number of our warriors that are to be immediately followed by our great guns, ammunition, and provisions. However, the French were still busy building at the forks. According to historian Paul Vickery, Fort Duquesne would have 12-foot-thick log and earth walls, a dry moat, contain eight cannon, and be large enough to house 200 men, a substantial nut for the British to crack. French commander at the Forks Contracorps knew that Virginian militia was in the region and dispatched Joseph Coulon de Jumonville to intercept those troops and keep them out of the disputed territory. On May 24th, Washington arrived at the Great Meadows region, still some 50 miles away from his intended destination. However, he as well as his men were in need of rest, and an ample supply of water and foliage in the area provided just that. The 160 troops under Washington had exhausted themselves at a grueling two to three miles a day, carving a road through the thick forests in hope that Colonel Fry's reinforcements and artillery would soon arrive. It was then that Half-King sent Washington a letter. He said he was nervous about the situation with the French and claimed he had seen troops looking for him just two days prior. However, he was set to meet with Washington in about five days. With such news, Washington became fearful of an attack and ordered his men to dig in. Washington then wrote to Governor Dinwiddie that his troops had, quote, made a good entrenchment and then, by clearing the bushes out of these meadows, prepared a charming field for an encounter. On May 27th, a man named Gist came to camp, telling Washington that there had just been 50 Frenchmen at his house. Shortly thereafter, word came from Half-King that there were about 30 French soldiers in a low, obscure place. What happened next could be best described in Washington's own words, as he and native leader Tenacherison agreed to scout the area and, quote, fall on them together. Washington wrote, We formed ourselves for an engagement, marching one after the other in the Indian manner. We were advanced pretty near to them, as we thought, when they discovered us, whereupon I ordered my company to fire. The greater part of the action, which only lasted a quarter of an hour before the enemy were routed, we killed Mr. Dumonville, the commander of that party, as also nine others. The Indians scalped the dead and took away the most part of their arms. Historian Paul Vickery writes, It was a mixed victory. In his first battle, Washington was unable to restrain the Indians he commanded. He also attacked what was essentially a diplomatic mission. His actions precipitated what was called the French and Indian War in America and the Seven Years' War in Europe. Clearly his orders gave him the authority, but did he have the judgment necessary to make such a decision? He obviously believed he had done the right thing. It was of course after this that Washington wrote the famed words that he found the whistle of bullets charming to his brother. Upon hearing these words, however, King George III said he would not say so if he had been used to hear very many. May 29th, the day following the battle, Washington wrote to Governor Dinwiddie, providing a brief account of the action. He of course accused the French of being spies, saying that their intentions were evil. He quoted Half-King and said that they had bad hearts. He feared a retaliatory attack 
and ordered the completion of a palisade around Fort Necessity, and on June 2nd the aptly named fort was finally completed. The young commander wrote, We had prayers in the fort, and as some historians think, he would need divine help as both white and Indian families soon arrived seeking protection, and the French were sure to counter-assault. Next time on Days of Your Podcast, we'll see how the Battle of Fort Necessity would change Washington and the effect of the Seven Years' War.